Good morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at Courtright. And if this is your first time here, I just want to extend a special welcome out to you. And uh, just a reminder for those uh, with kids that uh, there are some packets. Um, There's no kids' ministry this morning, but there's lots of packets. So if you need to grab one at the back, um, there's one available. So as we take a break from our Founders of the Faith series, which we've been doing over the past few months, I thought it might be good to jump into uh, the New Testament uh, to examine a story from the Gospel of Luke. So today we're going to explore one of my favorite passages of all time that I have never preached on before. So I'm deeply excited. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses uh, 14 to 30, where we see Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth making an important announcement. It's a proclamation of good news with significant implications for how we understand the gospel. Two weeks ago, um, my step-grandfather passed away after many years of suffering with dementia. And uh, while he was in hospice, I had the chance to connect with my grandmother and to support her and to pray with them. And she asked, uh, while I was there, she asked if I would lead the funeral uh, for them, which I was honored to do last Saturday. One of the things that she asked, uh, just as a, as a request as we were preparing and getting things ready for the funeral, she asked if there was something of a gospel message in the service. I always have to think about how to do that in the context of a funeral. You got to be a bit careful. Um, you know, you don't want to prey on people's grief. Uh, but rather offer people a message of hope in a time where people are asking existential questions about life. So each time I do something like that, it forces me to ask a really critical question. It forces me to ask, what precisely is the gospel? I'd venture to guess that a lot of Christians, when pressed, might struggle to give a, a, a simple definition. You know, usually we say something about Jesus dying for our sins and so on and so forth. And in fact, that's some version of what many popular Western theologian, pastor types would say. So just as a few examples, we've got a few quotes here. So Tim Keller was often quoted as saying the following. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The reformer Martin Luther wrote this, the gospel is a story about Christ, God's and David's son who died and was raised and is established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell. British theologian N.T. Wright in an article for Christianity Today wrote, the gospel is the royal announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. When this gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. And if you've ever read anything by N.T. Wright, that is the most N.T. Wright sentence ever. Um, Northern Seminary professor uh, Scott McKnight wrote this in a book. He wrote, the gospel is the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of a community for the good of others and the world. That one's a bit different. And then Pastor John Piper in an interview stated the following. 
said, the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. So kind of other than Scott McKnight's definition of the gospel, those all sound relatively, there's a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same beats there. And I think they're all basically true. I, I might nitpick over a word here or there, but that's, that's just me personally. But how does Jesus define the gospel? After all, isn't this whole thing about him? Shouldn't he get to define the terms at least a little bit? <laughs> so my hope for us this morning as we read and unpack today's passage is that we will see the depth and the breadth of the gospel and its, unexpect- and its unexpected implications for our lives. So let's pray before we read. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Luke 4, 14 to 30. Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you, will th- and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. What a homecoming experience. (laughs) So Jesus had been traveling through the region of Galilee, going from synagogue to synagogue, and and word was spreading very quickly about all that he was doing, this dynamic new teacher and healer coming out of Nazareth of all places. And it seemed like he was quite well received for the most part. And then he heads back to his hometown. I want you to enter into this scene with me for a moment because I, I just find that it, the, the, the way this all goes about is quite rich. It's just this ordinary Sabbath day 
in this kind of backwater town of Nazareth. All the people head to their local synagogue, expecting a normal gathering, you know, just like we're experiencing here this morning. A normal gathering, it's a long weekend, um, it's a little bit quieter. We're not expecting something, you know, seismic to occur this morning, although maybe, who knows? And Jesus does something totally unexpected. He gets up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah about good news for the poor, liberation for captives, healing and freedom. And then he sits down, which was the posture of the teacher or rabbi. He sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now this reads as one passage, but it was actually two different sections of Isaiah from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58. His choice of passages is intentional and very curious. So the spirit of the Lord is on me, he says. Now the Holy Spirit up to this point in the the book of Luke has played a central role in Jesus's adult life. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. When Jesus went into the desert where he was tempted by Satan, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And again, at the beginning of our passage uh, in verse 14, he traveled to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just always good as, as you're reading the scripture to pick up little themes like that. Note, notice when there's a repetition like that. It, it's, it's important. It's saying something. So the spirit of the Lord has truly been on Jesus. It's irrefutable. And so when Jesus pulls out this passage from Isaiah, he is saying this from his own place of being, his own gut. The spirit of, Lord, the, spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That word anointed is creo. That's the, that's the Greek word. It is, it's the same root where we get the word Christ. There is a messianic, messianic aspect to this passage. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There's that word good news. The gospel means good news. It's the, it's the word euvangelizo, which is where we get the word evangelize from. But more directly, it's a, de- a declaration of significant news. It's an announcement heralding a victory the gospel, good news. And it's good news for all, but it's especially good news, Jesus says, for the poor. Poor in spirits, monetarily poor, metaphorically poor, all kinds of poor. After all, when you consider, um, you know, when you're dealing with conversations about rich and poor, who is most in need of a word from the Lord? Who is, in, who is most desperate to experience divine help? Usually not the rich, but the poor. Then he says, also freedom for prisoners. Freedom for prisoners. This was most likely referencing captives of war. So he's not talking about you know, a jailbreak where murderers are running free because the reality is most of those people would have been dealt with through their capital punishment system. He's talking about people in need of liberation. Think about World War II, the liberation of the Jews from the Nazis. This statement would have had some political undertones for sure. And then he says, recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Now the hearers may have heard this bit about blindness. They might have heard it both metaphorically and literally. There's obviously the component of spiritual blindness that, you know, when we sing a song like Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see, we mean that in in metaphorical terms. But they had also heard about all the amazing miracles that Jesus was doing throughout Galilee. And so there must have been a part of them that heard this as not just metaphorical or symbolic, but as 
literal sight for the literal blind. The passage from Isaiah ends with this, though, and this is the most curious part. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, God called his people to let the overtilled ground lay fallow, to release captives, release slaves back to their homes, to forgive and to relinquish debts. It was basically like pushing a reset button every 50 years. Like everything is back to normal. It's a reset button. Jesus say, Jesus is saying, the era of jubilee, the era of forgiveness and reconciliation, the era, the era of God's salvation and God's kingdom is here and now. And he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, and gives a quick little sermon. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Some of you are thinking, why can't we have sermons that short? <laughs> I think, he would have, I think he would have kept going even after initially, but, but I think it was the whole driving him off a cliff thing that you know, stopped his sermon. Um, but Jesus is saying, this is happening now. This, this whole thing that you guys have been waiting for and longing for, it's happening now. And they were amazed. This was so unexpected. And it also felt quite special that this proclamation of the gospel was me being made in their hometown of all places. Jesus was announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, that it was here and now. This was a day people had longed for and hoped for and were just waiting for it to come to fruition. It was almost too good to believe. And then things start to go a little bit downhill. One person pipes up and they say, isn't that Joseph's son? I think there's a little bit of a sense of amazement and perhaps maybe a little bit of disbelief in there as well. Um, there's a little side note. I, I can't help but think if there was anyone who kind of knew the circumstances around Jesus' birth, maybe they leaned over to them and were kind of like, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> so Jesus notices the reactions and he continues his little sermon. He says to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Evidently, these rumors of miracles and healings had started to make their way into Nazareth. Jesus had kind of surmised that they wanted to see him do similar things, similar signs and wonders. But he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. It's not often that I can say I relate to Jesus. But as, as I was reading this part of the passage, I had some flashbacks uh, where doing ministry was a bit challenging at times because I was doing it in the place where I was raised. So a really quick story. Um, growing up at my home church, there was this woman called Dorothy. Um, and she taught me Sunday school. Um, she had known me literally since I was a baby. And she always would say to me when she would run into me, she would say, Justin, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. And, uh, and she would pull out like a notepad that she carried around with her everywhere. And it had a list of all the people she prayed for. It was like amazing. She was so amazing. She still is amazing. She's still alive. Later on, when I was on staff on the, at the church, um, she took a volunteer position kind of manning the, uh, the, the info desk. 
And I, I would walk by, and she would again remind me that she was praying for me every day. And then she'd also add something to the effect of, and I'm not, could you not, every time she would say this, she would say, I'm so proud of you, Justin. I want you to know that. I'm so proud of you. I used to change your diapers, you know? <laughs> and she'd say, and now look at you. Now look at you. I used to change your diapers, and now look at you. <laughs> Which is like so sweet. So sweet, but also who wants to have that in the back of their mind when they go up to like a crowd like this to preach and you're like, who else here has changed my diaper? (laughs) (laughs) It's this weird mixture of like, it's beautiful in a way, but it's also challenging. It's also challenging. Because, you know, you get people that don't take you seriously. And I think there were were people in in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth that didn't, take him seriously. Like, I saw that runt running around when he was a toddler. He was a brat, you know? Like, like I don't know whether Jesus was or not, but, you know, maybe they thought that. <laughs> Jesus continues on. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And then they literally tried to run him off of a cliff before Jesus kind of, I'm not sure how precisely Jesus escaped. I think we talked about it, you know, in our our kind of study time with Allison and Howard and I, we talked about like Jesus had some like stealthy ninja moves to get around them. But my question is, what did Jesus say that made them so upset? What did he say that angered them to the point where they wanted to drive him off a cliff? They were with him up to that point. They were were right there. They were excited. The two examples that Jesus uses are from two of Israel's most beloved prophets, Elijah and then his successor, Elisha. So both examples show these prophets doing profound miracles. Elijah Elijah goes to this widow in Zarephath, which is not in Israel. Really important to remember that. It's not in Israel. That was kind of, I think, their sticking point. And he stays with this widow for quite a long time because this famine, there was no food anywhere. And this this woman, she said to Elijah, Elijah asked for food, and and she said, I I don't have anything. I have enough for one, one cake of bread. I have a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to make it for me and my son. We're going, to, we're going to make it and then eat it and then die. That was what she said. And so Elijah said, I, I promise you that you are not going to die, that you are actually going to have enough flour and oil to last you until the drought is over. And so he stayed with them during that time. It was this amazing miracle. Um, it was the, 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 the flour and oil never ran out. It's just remarkable. And then Elisha does something very different, but similar in the sense that it was also for someone outside of their uh, people group. So Elisha, he heals this man of leprosy, this man named Naaman, and he was a Syrian man, not an Israelite. What is Jesus implying here? He seems to be saying that this good news message, this gospel message, was not merely, not only for the people of Israel, but for outsiders. This would have been unexpected and and scandalous even. 
Here are the, the Israelites. They're under Roman occupation. Many of them are suffering greatly at the hands of these outside forces. They longed for liberation. They longed to be a nation in the way that they once were. And Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom was initially so exciting, so enticing, because perhaps this time was finally now that they were going to become a nation again. But very quickly, they turn on the hometown hero because he's saying that God is not only the God of liberation and freedom for them, but the God of liberation and freedom for the Gentiles too. It's remarkable. So I want us to consider, I want us to consider how Jesus' definition of good news as he reads from this passage in Isaiah ought to shape our understanding of what the gospel is for both ourselves and for the world around us. And there's two aspects I want to briefly explore this morning. The first is that the gospel is both spiritual and physical. And secondly, that the gospel is for everyone. And at its surface, some of these might seem quite basic, but let's jump into it. So the gospel is spiritual and physical. We often think that the gospel is about primarily the death and resurrection of Jesus and how it justifies us before a holy God. And that is absolutely true. I'm not going to try to rock the boat in any way that way. But Jesus gives us a gospel message before any of that happens, before his death and resurrection. And it's worth considering the implications of this. You know, modern Western Christians tend to see the gospel as primarily a spiritual reality. You know, we're sinners. Jesus died and was raised. Uh, and we are now forgiven. And we get to go to heaven. Like that. And again, the issue is not that any of that is wrong. It's correct. But the problem is it's incomplete and truncated. The unexpected gospel, on the other hand, goes deeper than solely our spiritual understanding sorry, our spiritual standing before the Lord. It's no mistake that Jesus' announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God was from a section of Isaiah that specifically highlighted both the spiritual and physical realities of life in the kingdom. And Jesus himself and many other peoples and cultures throughout history have seen this good news as a much more embodied experience. After all, for someone in abject poverty or slavery, or indentured servitude, or someone experiencing extreme injustice or oppression, how, can this, how good can this good news be if it has no bearing on their current reality? Now, I want to be really clear. This is not in any way to undermine the critical nature of our spiritual standing before God. But rather, I want us to consider that Jesus cares about more than just that, our spiritual standing. And in fact, a robust understanding of the gospel will always include both our spiritual and our physical welfare. If time allowed, we don't have the time, but if time allowed, we could go through the whole story of scripture, cover to cover, and see the, the, that spiritual salvation of God's people, it can be inextricably linked to physical realities. God saving the Israelites from Egypt. God saving Israel and Judah from their other nations and their captors. God saving Israel and Judah from themselves and their own evil kings. God's deep care and concern for injustice, for the poor, for the widowed, the orphaned, and the foreigner. And God's miraculous 
physical providence in countless stories over and over again. The practical implications of this, I think, generally are obvious, that if we are to be a gospel people, we must embody our faith, because Jesus cares deeply about every facet of our lives, soul, mind, and body. This means that we should continue to seek both the spiritual and physical flourishing of those around us. That's for us and for others, which we'll get to in a second. Here's just a simple example of how that plays out. Many of you know we have our food security garden back there. And if someone goes to serve in that food security garden, they go volunteer, work along some other volunteers, and they pick some weeds, and they squish some potato bugs, and they harvest some produce, it would be really easy to look at that as purely and primarily a physical act, that I, I went and did the thing, and then I went home and did it, and then you know didn't do that thing. It's providing a tangible need, and that's all. But I would encourage you, and this is true of all areas of ministry, all areas of service, I would encourage you to see that this is a spiritual act as well. It is an act of worship, I would actually say. Some of that produce gets sent down to Royal City Mission, where meals get made and, and bodies are nourished, and many will interact with the volunteers and the ministry staff, and many will have an encounter with Jesus along the way, whether through uh, an interaction, a one-on-one -on -one interaction, or perhaps even going to a church service there on Sunday mornings. It's a physical act. It's a spiritual act. And Christianity has done itself a disservice by severing our physical and spiritual selves. The gospel is both spiritual and physical because we're not just meant to experience the kingdom of God later, but the kingdom of God is here and now. Yet, of course, there's also the and not yet part of that, where we know that we po possibly can't solve every global injustice or crisis. We know that poverty, Jesus said, poverty will always remain. It'll always be among us in some capacity. But for what is within our power and with what is within our control, we need to support and continue to support one another and our community for the physical and spiritual flourishing of one another. We should continue to speak up when injustice pervades. We should continue to speak both physical and spiritual healing for one another. The more that we do this, the more we are living as people of the unexpected gospel. Secondly, the gospel is for everyone. To be honest, this is the harder part. It sure got Jesus' hometown pretty upset. Jesus made it abundantly clear this message of spiritual and physical liberation was not only for Israel. And this, by the way, is not a particularly new invention of Jesus. Um, we've just finished going through the story of Abraham. And frequently throughout that story, we see God include others into that family. It's not just, it was, it was not a blood thing. It was whoever wants to be the people of God, come be the people of God. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations, plural, not just their nation. In the same way, Jesus is kind of renewing this call. He makes it clear as he highlights the, the works of the prophets, the prophets Elijah and Elisha. The, they were doing these miracles toward these Gentiles. That this kingdom is not about looking inwardly. It's about looking outwardly. 
This is one of those areas in church life that is easy to talk about and easy to kind of theorize around, but it's difficult to do. When we are focused inwardly, we get to maintain our preferences and we get to stay in our comfort zone. But when we focus outwardly, it can feel honestly disorienting at times. There's, there's a fear there. We're like, we're going to lose control over something. And frankly, it can feel unfair. You know, it's like, I've been a part of this church for X amount of decades. And now you come in and do this and do that. And the other thing, by the way, that's not conversations I've had with you. I'm just, I'm just spitballing here that that could happen. It seems like that's how the folks in Nazareth felt. They were fearful there wasn't enough grace to go around, not enough freedom to go around, not enough tangible resources to go around. And yet, is not God a God of abundance? God is not a God of scarcity. There is enough grace to go around. Seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, and God will provide. Friends, there's room at the table. Generosity begets more, begets more generosity. Love begets more love. Life begets more life. This sort of shift for a faith community, it doesn't happen overnight most of the time. You know, I, I fully believe God can transform a heart in an instance, but sometimes God plays the long game. And it's the, the, sh- the changing of a community over time. And I've seen God do that in my four plus years here, that there's been a, a shift and a change in a really beautiful and profound way as we continue to look at how we can build trust among our neighbors in our city. In closing, so if we believe that the spiritual and physical gospel is for everyone, who is God softening your heart toward? I want you to just take a, a moment and consider these questions as I ask them. So again, who is God softening your heart towards? Who is not present among us? If you kind of look around the room, who is not present among us that perhaps we need to make room for? Who are people that perhaps even make you feel uncomfortable that God might calling you personally to befriend and to love and to care for. In a few moments, um, we're, we're going to partake in communion together, and I'm going to invite uh, Kristen to come on up and play a song for us. And this is a song that we've only really done a couple times over the past few years, so it might not be familiar to all of you, but it is a profoundly beautiful song about the the kingdom of God and and who God invites to the table. And so as we prepare to experience communion, I would encourage you to sit and listen and reflect as we consider the people that Jesus died for and who God is calling us to love and welcome in and provide for and show this unexpected gospel to.